Uh, if you've got a Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be in verses uh, 12 to 17 uh, today. Uh, Jesus cleansing the temple, and we, we, like, we like cleansing temple, Jesus. We like flipping table, Jesus. Um, most of us do anyway, or, or find it convenient at times to, to resonate with the Jesus that flipped over uh, tables. But I, I read a, uh, a social media post recently that said that we, we like to identify with flipping tables, Jesus, but we struggle to identify with the Jesus who ate with his enemies around a table. Um, and and I, I find that very thought-provoking because we, we like flipping tables, Jesus, when it serves our purpose, right? When we think there's something that we should be uh, angry about. And, and one thing we know about Jesus is that um, he didn't sin, right? So, so in his anger, uh, flipping tables, Jesus was perfectly righteous uh, and sinless uh, in so doing. But you and me, it's kind of a different story. I don't, I don't think that our anger is ever without sin, right? And so I think recognizing just our, our propensity to, to try to justify our anger with this, realizing Jesus was sinless, we're, we're sinful. Uh, and I don't, I don't even know if it's possible for us to have a righteous kind of an anger that's completely free uh, from our sin. Um, so as we think about this today and see, see what Jesus did, just remember that Jesus also shared tables with his enemies and had meals uh, with his enemies. As we get into the passage, it's worth noting that there are a couple of different uh, passages where Jesus flipped tables. So we've got the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke that, that share a version of it. And then John has a version of it. Uh, and they're at different times in Jesus' ministry. And so people that are smarter than me haven't really figured out uh, if there's one instance or two instances that are just placed differently uh, in the gospels. But it, it seems like uh, because John places his uh, account of, of Jesus going into the temple and cleansing it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the synoptic gospels place it at the end, uh, that it's possible that there's two different times that this happened. And one uh, commentator had this to say, so that John's gospel records a similar cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, interpreters have proposed two explanations. One, that there was only one cleansing, but John narrated the action at the beginning for thematical or theological purposes, while the synoptic gospels narrate the actual historical chronology. Or, the second option, there were indeed two similar but distinctly different temple cleansings. The differences of the details seem to indicate the latter, for while the initial action is similar, Jesus' statement in Matthew 21 and the challenge from the Jewish leaders are entirely different from what John records. In addition, John places the event so early in his gospel that it would be difficult to think that he wanted readers to take it as anything but an event that happened early in Jesus' ministry. Thus, Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning as a warning and at the end of his ministry as a statement of judgment on the leadership of Israel. And I do, before we get into our Matthew passage, want to read John's account of Jesus cleansing the temple. It's found in John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. And it says this, that the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His, disciple, his disciples remembered that it was written, 
zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And one of the reasons I wanted to read this passage is because the Synoptic Gospels don't record this latter part about the destroying and the rebuilding of the temple and Jesus uh, giving them a glimpse into what was to come. And uh, as they often did, the religious leaders of his day didn't understand what he was talking about. But we're also told that his disciples remembered that it was written or that it was prophesied that zeal for your house will consume me. And, and Jesus, uh, in his sinless, perfect, righteous anger uh, in these events, um, was driven by zeal for what happens with God's people in God's house. Right? We, we get angry about a lot of things, um, but it's probably not often for most of us zeal for the house of God that consumes us like it consumed Christ. And so as we look at Matthew's account, Matthew 21, starting in verse 12, Matthew's account goes like this. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my household shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out to the city of Bethany and lodged there. And so we see these kind of different accounts that in some ways are similar, in other ways uh, are not similar. Um, but maybe to give us a little bit of context as to what might be happening here, um, let me give you just a really simplified overview of the temple. So the temple was this kind of massive complex. Um, some theologian I read said it could have been as big as like a million square feet, this whole temple complex. He was huge. And there were the different sections of the temple and not everybody was allowed in every part of the temple. And so you had kind of this outer court that was called the court of the Gentiles. And that's where as a Gentile, that's as far in as you could go, right? So, so imagine that you show up for church today and you're restricted to the community room. I mean, at least there's coffee and donuts there, but you can't come farther in, right? This is what, what's happening in, in the temple of Jesus' day. The Gentiles couldn't go beyond or unpurified Israelites. In other words, Israelites that hadn't gone through uh, the purification rituals uh, couldn't go past this area. And then there was this wall inside the temple that, that segregated another section uh, of the temple. And this was uh, the partition wall. And one commentator said this, that the Jews in Jerusalem were so zealous in keeping the purity of the majority of the temple that they placed stones along this wall which threatened death to any Gentile who would enter. Welcome to church. <laughs> and then beyond that, there on the other side of this wall was 
the inner court, only purified Israelites or Israelites who had gone through the ritualistic purification process could enter uh, this section. And then beyond that, there were sections that only the priests could go to. And we, we don't resonate with this because our, our churches aren't like this today. Can, can you imagine coming to uh, a house of worship that's segregated in this way? This was before the New Testament church was formed. This, this was uh, the Jewish synagogue and things that would happen there. But can you imagine a segregated house of worship that said only certain people could go to certain places? And if you go beyond this place, you might even get killed, right? That, that's, that's hardcore. And this was the temple of Jesus' day. So even having that basic understanding might help us understand a little bit uh, Jesus' anger in this situation. We might understand why Jesus felt the need to come in and flip some tables uh, in this, because this, this is not the way this th- that things should be. Jesus entered the temple, we're told, and he drove out people who were selling. So there was business going on in the temple. And, and maybe another key part of our understanding is that this was the only part of the temple where the Gentiles could, could offer worship because they couldn't go into the other places of the temple. So this was the only place where they could offer worship. And, and there's all these things going on around them, money changing. People would travel from all around uh, the region or maybe the known world at that time to come to the temple uh, in Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices and to offer their praise. And so part of the business of the temple was that you could buy and sell uh, animals for sacrifice Um, And this was maybe for a practical reason. Imagine if you're traveling, especially a great distance, several days journey, uh, and you you don't want to bring livestock with you to offer as a sacrifice. It's real convenient if you can just buy it at the temple, right? So so practically we can understand, okay, this this is why this was happening. But but what it turned into was that uh, there was more business happening than worship uh, in the temple. And I think, again, that gives us a glimpse of why Jesus felt the need to do what he did. And so he overturned the tables. Uh, there were money changers there because, again, people would travel from all over. And so uh, there was only a certain type of money that was uh, acceptable to use in the temple for purchase. And so you would have to exchange your money uh, for whatever the temple currency was. Uh, and so that was going on. And so Jesus comes into this. And, and as Brent pointed out last week, remember, this is just the last few days of Jesus' life in these last few chapters of Matthew, the last week of his life. And so he's on his way to the cross, right? And last week we saw that, that he entered Jerusalem. The, the passage is called the triumphal entry. And he entered Jerusalem uh, to the praise of the people, but to the chagrin of the religious leaders uh, of his day. And it's likely kind of the next day um, where this happens, where he goes to the temple and he drives out the money changers. And he makes this comment to them. It's written that my house shall be called a house of prayer. And that's a reference to something that was written by the prophet Isaiah. So Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7, it says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And this was written long before Jesus came on the scene by the prophet Isaiah, noting that 
the house of God would be known as a house of prayer for all peoples. And that for those who have joined themselves to the Lord, even foreigners, that their sacrifices would be acceptable to the Lord in his house of prayer, which is for all peoples. And now we get to Jesus' day, and the house of God is not necessarily a house for all peoples, or at least certain parts of it are not for everybody. So again, this tells us a little bit about maybe what was behind Jesus doing what he did. In Mark's account of this, it says this. It says that they came to Jerusalem, and this is found in Mark 11. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And so Mark gives us maybe a slightly different perspective on what happened. He adds the detail that as Jesus was doing this, that he was teaching the people. So, so maybe he wasn't just on a blind rage, just flipping every table that was there. It says that he was teaching the people. And Jesus, like he never misses a teaching moment, right? And so even, even in this scene, it says that he was teaching the people. And it says that the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Maybe they were astonished at him driving out the money changers and such as well. But, but Mark gives us the detail that they were astonished at the teaching of Jesus. And what is it that he was teaching them? He was teaching them that the house of God shouldn't be segregated. He was teaching them that the house of God is a place of worship, right? Not, not a place of business. Now, the religious leaders of his day, it doesn't tell us that they were astonished at his teaching. It says that they heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him. Right, these, of, of, of anybody who, who maybe should be astonished at, at the teaching of the Messiah, you would think it might be the religious leaders of the day, but um, they were upset because the people were hanging on every word of Jesus. It says that they feared him because he had the ear of the people. And so they were seeking a way to destroy him. And we see in both accounts in Matthew's account and Mark's account that he, he says to them that you make the house a den of robbers. And that is a reference to something that the prophet Jeremiah wrote. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 11 to 20, had this to say. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all of your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim." As for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or a prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. 
Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. These are some harsh words here from God. He's recognizing, even back in the days of Jeremiah, that there's been this kind of profaning of the temple and the profaning of the worship of God. And we can see just reading this, that, that it matters to God what his people do in his house. It matters, and it's something that he takes seriously. So much so that he's talking about casting people out. He even says, don't pray for this people. Can you imagine God saying, don't pray for somebody? He says through Jeremiah, don't pray for this people or lift up a cry or a prayer for them. Do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. This is harsh. But again, I think we take from this that God takes seriously what his people do in his house, and he's recognizing um, their drift from the worship of God and to the worship of, of other gods. And it's provoked the Lord to anger. Again, his anger is perfect. His anger is righteous. His judgment is perfect and righteous. Our, our anger and our judgment is anything but his is perfect and righteous. And through this, he's provoked to anger. He even recognizes that the people have provoked their own shame in their drift from the God of the Bible as they worship other gods. And so this isn't something that was just happening one day when, when Jesus was kind of hopping along through Jerusalem and he decides to, to go in the temple and, and correct some people that maybe have done something that was slightly off. This is something that has been happening to the people of God for a long time. And I think we have to realize our own propensity today in 2024 um, to drift and, and to worship other gods. What God's people do in God's house matters to God. And so Jesus comes into the temple and in his perfect, righteous, sinless anger, flips tables and drives people out. But then in verse 14 of Matthew 21, this seemingly odd thing happens. It says that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now, I'm thinking if I see Jesus flipping tables in the temple, I'm probably not going to approach him, right? I mean, you ever like, you know, when you remember when you were a kid and like you see your dad mad and you want to ask him something, but like you want to wait for him to cool down, you know, before, like, like you kind of plan your moment. But in this moment where he's driving people out, he's teaching people and they're hanging on his every word, the blind and the lame, the outcasts of the society, the people that couldn't go very far into the temple, and maybe some of them because of their condition, maybe could hardly get into the temple to begin with. And the blind and the lame, they came to him. And Jesus didn't say, don't bother me. He didn't say, do, do you see what's going on here? It, we're just told that he healed them. He healed the blind and the lame. I think this is pretty remarkable. 
So, so this again shows us that Jesus just wasn't on this free-for-all rage, right? Jesus was there to make a point and he was there to minister to the people that needed to be ministered to. And probably the people that weren't given the time of day by the religious leaders. And Jesus not only gave them the time of day, but he served them in healing them in that moment. Then in verse 15, it tells us when the priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things they did, that they marveled and they worshiped Jesus. No, it doesn't tell us that. It says that when they saw the wonderful things that he did, that they were indignant. They were angry. And so we have Jesus in his righteous, sinless, perfect anger teaching and healing and trying to correct something that's wrong. And then we have the religious leaders in their probably unrighteous and no doubt sinful anger, being angry that Jesus is healing people. They were indignant. And then this other kind of remarkable thing was happening in the midst of this as well. It says that there were children that were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna is a plea for salvation and the son of David is a title for the Messiah. And these children were crying out. It's kind of interesting about this. So last week in the the, the passage of the triumphal entry, we see that the religious leaders weren't really hip on Jesus making his way into Jerusalem. But Jesus, in in Luke's account of the triumphal entry, Luke 19, uh, verse 39, says that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples, because they were crying out Hosanna as he was making his way into Jerusalem. And Jesus answered the Pharisees, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus will be praised and Jesus will be worshiped. He'll be worshiped by little kids even. Little kids that probably don't even know what they're saying. Right? These kids are young enough that, that they probably don't even recognize or realize what they're saying. These could be toddlers, even infants, we're told in another passage, crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Right? This is an act of God that's happening here. This isn't of the volition of kids that, that don't understand what they're saying. And Jesus is making a point here and in Luke's account of the trial, triumphal entry that he will be praised. He will be worshiped. And if nobody does it, even the rocks will cry out in worship and praise to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Even the rocks will do it. And so as hard as we may try as human beings, as hard as we may try as a people um, to deny God, to not worship God, to profane even the worship of God, he, he will be rightly praised. The Bible tells us that there's going to be a day when every knee will bow, willingly or unwillingly, and every tongue will confess. And there will be no doubt in the mind of anybody that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be no doubt. But even if that day never comes, which it will, but even if that day never comes, the the things that don't have life will cry out in praise to God. Matter of fact, The Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans that all we have to do is look around it at what God has created, right? And and there's no 
reason for us to not believe in his existence and no reason that that wouldn't drive us to worship him. And so even the stones would cry out. Jesus responds to the Pharisees, have you never read that out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And we see this praise happening here in, in the temple as Jesus is, is trying to right a wrong as he's correcting the profane worship of God in the house of God. And then our passage ends with just saying that, they, that he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. And I want to maybe try to bring this to some conclusion uh, with a passage out of Ephesians chapter 2 written by the Apostle Paul. Ephesians chapter 2 starting in verse 11 says this, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Apostle Paul, being a, an educated uh, Jew himself, would likely have had in mind this dividing wall inside of the temple that threatened death for Gentiles that would go beyond it. When he tells us that Christ has, has abolished that dividing wall. And it's no longer Jew and Gentile, but it's one people of God because of what Jesus has done. And he came and he preached peace. Jesus preached peace to those who were far off and those who were near. And the reality is that we're all, we're all far off from Christ. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day maybe thought they were nearer than they really were. The Apostle Paul tells us both to those who are near and far that, that he preached peace and that we are no longer strangers. There's no longer Jew and Gentile. There's no longer religious and irreligious. There's no longer the segregation that society places on us, rich or poor, or whatever measure that you want to use. But we're all one in Christ, and that, that through Jesus' work on the cross, that he's made us citizens of heaven. And if you think about even just who's in the room, that there are probably people in the room that, that you wouldn't naturally gravitate towards one another in life. Maybe you're a different station in life. Maybe you have different affinities in life. But think about who God has brought here just in this room. 
and we're all one in Christ. There's no segregation in Christ the way that society segregates people. The whole structure, we're told, is being joined together as it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, for the Jew, give you one other key detail about the temple. It was generally understood in, in Jewish culture that, that God dwelt in the temple. And if you wanted to go worship God, to be near God, to experience God, you would have to go to the temple to do that. That's why the temple played such a key role in Jewish life. Even before they had a temple, when, when the Israelites were wandering through the desert for years and years and years, they had a tabernacle, which was the portable temple. And it was a tent that they would erect. And it was understood that, that God dwelt in the temple. And you would have to go to the temple. But the Apostle John gives us a, a new understanding in the opening words of his gospel that, that the word became flesh, that, that God became flesh and he dwelt among us. And the word that John uses for dwelt is, is the same word for tabernacle. That the presence of God came to us and not only did the presence of God come to us, but the presence of God dwells in us as Christians, as followers of Christ. And so when Paul talks about in our Ephesians passage that we're joined together, growing into a temple into the Lord, as people come to faith in Christ, it's like another brick in the wall of the temple. Another brick that fortifies the temple based on the work of Christ and we're being built together into a dwelling place of God. And so, so man or mankind, humanity is now the dwelling place of God. We don't have to go to the temple. I'm glad you're here today, but, but God dwells in us, right? We come together as, as bricks in the wall, so to speak, um, to worship God together. But, but the dwelling place of God, God doesn't dwell here necessarily. God dwells here because we're here and he's in us. And so what a beautiful thing that is that he's created one new man in the place of the two, abolishing the ways that we segregate. And so again, having this understanding gives us a little bit of an idea of of why Jesus did what he did. And he did so teaching the people, teaching the people about the right worship of God. And so if I had any encouragement for us today is to remember that what God's people do in God's house matters. And and I know you know that, right? It it matters. But as as we come here to gather on Sundays, realizing that that the church shouldn't be a place that's segregated, that we should be a a place that, that welcomes all who are seeking God. And that even as we go out there into the world, in our different corners of society that we would realize that that the arms of Christ are wide open to all those who would seek him regardless of where they are in life or society or how they're measured. Jesus gave time to the blind and to the lame, to the outcasts of society. More so probably than the religious leaders. And and if you think about it, some of the harshest words that Jesus had to say were for the religious leaders of his day. Jesus didn't have a lot of harsh things to say about the outcasts of society. Matter of fact, maybe he didn't have any harsh things to say about the outcasts of society. Jesus, as I said in the beginning, sat around tables having meals with the unlikeliest of people. 
and a hope that, that we value as a church that kind of thing, while at the same time holding on to the fact that, that what God's people do in God's house matters and what we do here on a Sunday morning matters, how we worship God. And so I hope that you're encouraged today at Jesus' righteous, sinless, perfect anger trying to right a wrong and that, that even this, this passage would give us hope that, that Christ loves us, that he loves those that are not here, that are out there, and that we would go out into the world in a way that matters, but also in a way that, that shows that Christ's arms are wide open for even the most unlikely people in society. Father, we're thankful today. Um, thankful that you love the unlovable. Thankful that you love uh, us who are unlovable. God, we're thankful that, uh, that you care about what happens with your people in your house. We're thankful that you are worthy of all of the worship that we could ever give. God, we're thankful that even in your uh, perfect anger that you still love us and that you still take time uh, to teach us when we get things wrong. And so pray that you would help us uh, just to remain a teachable people. You would help us to be a people uh, that loves those that are difficult to love, that loves those that are not like us, that you would help our church to be a place um, that promotes and not profanes in any way uh, the worship uh, of the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. God, we're thankful that we can ask these things and we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.